could supply several reasons why I think Nancy, my wife, married the wrong person. Those reasons have grown over time, I've noticed. Uh, but one reason is because her father could fix anything. And so legend has it that the, the famous Ken Cochran once fixed a lawnmower with parts from a dryer or a washing machine. And so I don't know if at the end it cleaned and cut the grass all at the same time, but he somehow was able to take parts off a washing machine and put it on a lawnmower and work. The only way I can fix a lawnmower is to put it in the back of my SUV and take it to somebody who can fix it. But occasionally, even though I have this disability for fixing things, you know, I'll try to do a project and I'll say, well, you know, this is when you really know you're in trouble. Oh, this won't be so bad. And, you know, whenever you say that, you know it's going to be a bad project. But I kept thinking we had just bought this house in Wilmington. We just moved there, and we were in a neighborhood where on the left-hand side of our backyard was pretty much part of the backyard of the neighbor next to us. We lived on a bit of a circle, and so on the right-hand side it was pretty open. But here on the left-hand side, I just wanted one straight fence. I didn't need it to have a gate. I didn't need to turn a corner. I just wanted one line of a fence, and I thought... I'm a college graduate. How hard can this be? And plus, when I went to the to Lowe's department store or the home improvement store, I saw that they already had the fence made. It was a big panel, an eight-foot panel, and all you had to do was just put it up on the post, and you had a, a fence. And I was like, okay, beautiful. This is beautiful. So I bought nine posts, and I bought eight panels. And I thought, okay, I know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to put these posts in, and you have like a chalk line. It's called a plumb line. And you make it straight, so every time you put your post in, and it's an inch away from the line, then you know those posts are going to be lined up straight. And so I thought, okay, this just can't be that difficult. And I cemented the post in, and the next day they were all, they looked straight to me. And so I got this eight-foot panel that was pretty heavy and hard to sort of hold up. But I held it up, and I put it on a little block over there, and I tapped in some nails at the top. And I came back, and I was like, yes, look at me. And I was just celebrating in the backyard about how wonderful this panel fence looked. And so I went, sure enough, I measured, and I was just off a quarter of an inch at the end of the panel. And I was like, yes. And I'm sure Nancy saw me like, what's he doing this dance in the backyard for? So I get the second panel. I put it on the... Got caught there. I put it on the on the little block that I'd made, and then I tack it up here and tack it up there, and I stand back and I go, you know, it's a little bit further off the ground now at the second panel. And the first panel was a quarter of an inch off, but the end of the second panel was about three or four inches off the ground. And I stepped back and thought, well, if I do one more panel, I've got eight panels. And I did some quick calculation. I figured by the time I got to the eighth panel, my fence would be 30 feet off the ground. <laughs> and so what did I have to do? To go back and make sure this first panel was not a quarter of an inch off. I had to make it just right. Because every panel after that was going to line up according to that first panel. And so that's the story I used 11 years ago. Now, this is the 12th time I've told that story. Some of you have heard it every time. You could come up and tell it. 
But the reason I use that illustration and I say this sermon every time that we get to Founders Day, it's the same sermon, is because we always want to go back and say, what, what was our foundation? What got us started? Because if we ever just get a little bit off, then in the next generation or the next generation, it won't take too long before us being off just a quarter of an inch could cause the next generation to be off by just several inches, and then the next generation could be miles off. And most of you are aware of just church history and know how you can get very, very, just a little bit of compromise, a little bit off. And then in the next generation or a hundred years later, now you're way off from what your foundation is. And so as Moses constantly did to his people and Joshua does through his book, he constantly comes back and says, let's remember how we got started. Let's remember what God was doing in our lives and let's remember what what we put our foundation on and always grow from there. And so Joshua is founding a nation. And we were founding a church 11 years ago, so I used these texts to help us see what are the critical points of beginning a church, beginning a foundation. And there were three points that were part of that time, God's chosen leadership, God's word, and courage. Those were the three points that I talked about 11 years ago, and those are the the three points that I want to remind us of today. I first want to thank those uh, that are left that are founding members that have stayed for 11 years. You might still have your old blue T-shirt and you got the barbecue and uh, thank you. It's not it's unlike anything I would have imagined 11 years ago. I mean, there are a lot more highs than I could have guessed. And there were several lows that I wouldn't have anticipated. But it's hard. It's hard to stay with something, especially as a founder, because you have certain things that you want to see happen because it's the birth of this new church. And then inevitably it doesn't quite match what, what you were hoping for. And then it becomes difficult to know how to stick with that. And so, you know, you understand that just as being as a parent, you have these hopes and dreams and then you realize, you know, that they're not going to quite match up. And how do I live with that? How do I stay with that? So I want to thank those who have stayed for these 11 years and particularly thank my family, Nancy, Morgan, Zachary. You guys all remember we were in uh, crosswinds and we were upstairs. And, we, you know, in every house, there's probably two rooms that you use, right? You use the kitchen, you know, in some other room, a family room or whatever. And we had a television in our bedroom. And so we just we were either in the kitchen or we were in our bedroom. And our bedroom had a couch in it and the television. We were always there. And so we sat there. And you guys probably remember Morgan was eight and Zachary was ten. And Nancy and I sat and said, hey, we're going we're gonna to start a new church. And uh, they, they both started crying. Well, then, then we started crying. You know, everybody's crying, you know. And all for different reasons. All because we were afraid of uncertainty, what was going to happen. And thank you guys for... Having trust. Thank you, Paul. You know, when you thank you, when you when you start something like this and I know you've had this feeling. It's 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 like running and jumping off a cliff. And you just don't know if you're going to be, you know, two inches, you hit the ground or. You don't you have no idea. And that that's what I asked them to do is would you. 
Would you jump off this cliff with your dad? And, and, and I know you know this feeling. It, it may not be the same as quite as how I feel about starting a church, but there are times in your life that just it feels like that. We've got to, we've got to jump off this cliff. And we can't say, you can't say to your, your business partner and you can't say to your spouse and you can't say to your child exactly where you're going to land or what it's going to look like. But you know this is the cliff that God's asking you to jump off. And he's saying... Be strong, be courageous, know that I will be with you wherever you go. And so that's been true here. And I want to just remind us of these three critical pieces, God's chosen leadership. You know, God's not limited in, in the way he wants to proclaim his name. And in fact, he does it a lot of different ways. Just, you know, Psalm 19, the creation, the heavens declare the glory of God. So you can just look at creation and you can't know everything about God, but you can know that there is a God because the heavens are declaring who God is. But the primary way that God wants to make his name known is through people and specifically through leaders. And we know that several different ways, but particularly in Adam. We know that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, and they were to reflect God on earth. So when you saw Adam and Eve, you knew there was something else that was going on, and that was God. But, but God specifically gave leadership to Adam. And we know that he did that because when the, after the fall, God comes back in the garden, and what is the very first thing he says? Adam and Eve have hidden themselves from each other and they've hidden themselves from the Lord. And, the, and God comes back and he says, Adam, where are you? He doesn't say Adam and Eve. Because something happened and he goes back to the leader and he says, hey, leader, what happened? And one of the biggest failures in the garden was a failure of leadership. And so God says, Adam, I put you in this garden so you could protect your bride and you could protect actually all of creation. And, of course, uh, I could start a whole sermon here, but you, you know that there is a, a second Adam who does come. And he's not in a garden. He's in a desert. And he has a bride. You know who his bride is? It's the church. And when Satan slithers up to, to Christ and says, did God really say this man doesn't fall, and that's Christ. And so we see that God is using his leadership. He's specifically ordaining certain people at certain times, like you would think of, um, of uh, Moses, you would think of Abraham, you would think of Noah, certain people that come to mind that God is using. And so uh, God is looking for leaders who will stand and reflect who God is. Ravi Zacharias makes this observation about godly leadership. There are no bona fide mass movements. It just looks that way. Instead, at the center of the column is a man or a woman who knows their God and where their God is going. At the center of, a, of a, what looks like a mass movement actually is an individual a man or a woman who knows their God and knows where their God is going. And there's no abstract movement that is moving ahead. There are individuals who are moving ahead. And therefore, the cause of Christ is going forward. The reason this is important, God called Moses and now he's calling 
Joshua. He's going to be the center of the column. The center of the column for Christ Community Church is this pulpit. And thus, whoever stands behind this pulpit. And I was reminded last week of how easy uh, my time behind the pulpit could actually come to a quicker end than that imagined. But there will be one day. I mean, 11 years has gone by relatively quickly in my mind. But there'll be a day when I'll say, and this is my last sermon behind this pulpit. And many of you all will still be members of the church. And it'll be your responsibility, along with the leadership, to put somebody at the center of this column who's going to teach and proclaim God's word. And so we've got to remember to say, this is the center of the column. This is, this is what we have come for. And we're going to be responsible for putting people here that are saying, this is what the Lord says, and then proclaiming that out to people. There's all kinds of um, competitors to that. And they seem interesting or glitzy or new or novel, and we, we don't want that. We want, like Jeremiah says, look for the ancient paths and go down those ways. And so that's what we've come here for. We're, we can get enough novelty out in the world. We, we need somebody at this place in history to say, this is what God is saying, and that person needs to be following after the Lord. The, the shepherd's primary responsibility or concern is to listen to God and lead from his word. Notice in Joshua 1, the Lord spoke to Joshua. He, he's listening to what the Lord has to say. Now we have the word of God. And, and when the word of God speaks, he's proclaiming that out. The leader's relationship to God must come before his relationship to the people. The, the leader, the person at the center of this column, the, the first in his primary allegiance is to God. And his secondary one is to you. And sometimes that's going to create a rub. But you want somebody here saying, the first thing I'm doing, I'm, I'm trying to follow after what God has to say. And then that might cause a rub at some point. But you're going to know and be able to trust this is what the word of the Lord has to say. We, we don't want a leader who's following their own mood. We don't want a leader who's following the mood of the culture. We want a leader who understands that he has an audience of one, and that is God. Remember in Exodus chapter 33, this was after the golden calf incident. And Moses is back talking with God, and God says this to Moses. Moses, leave this place. This is Mount Sinai. And, and, and I want you to go to the land that I've promised. I'm going to get you to the promised land despite what's been happening here. And I will give it to your descendants. Listen, listen to what God's going to do. You leave this place. I'm going to give you the promised land. I'm going to give it to your descendants. I'm going to send an angel before you to drive out your enemies. And then I'm going to plant you in this land that's flowing with milk and honey. Moses, there's been this big mix-up down here, and I want you to keep going forward, and I want you to know I'm going to get you there. I want you to know how wonderful it's going to be, and I want you to know that I'm going to send an angel that's going to go ahead of you, and all the enemies that you encounter, that angel's going to encounter them first. Wow, incredible. Except for this last line, 
But I will not go with you, the Lord says to Moses. And, and oh, how tempting it would have been to say, okay. I mean, if you're going to get everything you want, and God's going to send an angel that's going to defeat all your enemies, and what you're going to end up with is a land flowing with milk and honey, then great. Except God's not going to be there. And so in a very critical leadership moment, Moses says, if you're presence doesn't go with us we're not going to go see that's the the critical thing is where is god not what do we have or what do we get and even if he's going out and sending abundant things with us if he's not going to go with us then we can't go we can't leave and you have to have a leader that understands we're not going to go unless god is moving there with us which means you have to resist uh, sometimes novelty or popularity. Several years ago, I've used this illustration most years. You remember it was, it was I guess, 10 or 12 years ago when um, reality television broke onto the culture in a very wonderful, powerful way, reality television. Um, and so once it sort of, you know, I don't know, remember what the first reality television show was, but you know, once, once one became famous, then they, they just is a wash. And now really all television is reality television seems like. And so I guess trying to figure out what could be another, uh, interesting reality television show, somebody introduced what was going to be called pulpit masters. And so here was their little advertising slogan. You could be America's next inspired leader to make a positive difference in millions of people's lives. Are you imbued with the fire and passion of God? Do you understand the power of the spoken word? We are looking for someone who can wow the pants off an audience. (laughs) You just have three minutes. We're not trying to wow the pants off anybody here. Keep your pants on. <laughs> but do you, you you feel that you feel that 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 need for something that's spectacular, that need for something that's that's crisp, that's new, that's cutting edge, that's going somewhere, that that sense of movement. And you're thinking, gosh, maybe they've got it over there. And you have this tendency to to wander and stray either physically or in your mind. And and you just want that sort of wow and The wow is God and his word. That's the wow. And I'm not saying a a new approach or something new would, would never be a part of what we do. That certainly would be. But that's not going to be the main thing. We're not going to have this steady diet of wow. We're going to have this steady diet of wow. We're going to constantly be looking and saying we're so apt to stray. And so, God, would you would you teach us the old path? Would you tell us what the ancient way is? We just want to walk in the way Joshua and Jeremiah and Jesus walked. We're not trying to be novel or cute or popular. We're just trying to be godly and holy. And that's the direction that we want. And you're going to have to have a leader that keeps on that path. Second characteristic you see of a godly leader is he's a servant in this Opening chapter, Moses 
is referred to God's servant three times. So now Joshua is taking up that mantle. He's not just taking up the mantle of a leader. He's taking up the mantle of a servant leader. If you read through the New Testament, leader, that word leader in the Greek is used ten times. The word servant is used more than a thousand times. John Wesley, the famous founder of the Methodist Church, has a statue in London, and on the statue, well, John Wesley was a short man, five foot two, preached over 40,000 sermons. At 83, he went to see his doctor and he got angry at his doctor because his, his doctor asked him to cut down on his preaching. And his doctor said, you can't preach more than 14 times a week. In 86, John Wesley said in his journal, laziness is slowly creeping in. There is an increasing tendency to stay in bed after 530 in the morning. On his statue were these words, reader, if you feel constrained to praise the instrument, don't give God the glory. See, because Wesley's just a servant. Nobody comes to see the servant. Servant helps somebody see somebody that's greater. And so as, a, as somebody's standing at the center of the column, they're, they're going to be looked at. And there's a temptation for that person to grab things. And you want to make sure that person is always just saying, here, here's a platter. And I'm trying to put this on the platter. I'm trying to help you see the most important thing about all of the universe. And that person has to understand their leadership is serving that particular purpose. You also see here, the second thing, the importance of God's word. When you, when you build a fence, like I said, you have a plumb line. It's, it's a line that you can always say if you're, if you're correct according to the plumb line. And the word canon, the canon of scripture is the same kind of idea. It's, it's the plumb line. You can always put yourself up against the Bible and see if you're in the right spot. And so the word of God is a, a critical thing. And you see there's a, a verbal exhortation for Joshua to follow the word of God. And there's a visual exhortation to keep in line with the word of God. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. He says, be strong and courageous, being careful to do everything written in it. Don't turn. Don't turn to the right or left. Don't, don't, Joshua, don't get a quarter of an inch off right here because in the next generation you'll be four inches off and in the next generation you'll be 30 feet away. Don't, don't turn to the right or left. The word of God shall not depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. You see this verbal, verbal exhortation. The world is going to throw all kinds of distractions, but you keep your eyes not on the world, but you keep your eyes on the word. I think the best illustration for this is if you're a pilot. When you're learning to fly a plane, after so many lessons and so many hours, you get what's called a visual flight rating. And that means you can now pilot a plane as long as it's not cloudy. Because you need the horizon. You need the things that are on the earth to help you see which way you're going. And so if it gets cloudy, you can't go up in a plane if you just have a visual flight rating. But if you take a number of more hours and you get some more training, you, you get what's called an instrument flight rating. 
And so now you're flying according to what the instruments say and not according to what you see out in a cloud or you can't see. And you know that you can, as a, as a pilot, you can get into a cloud and you can start flying upside down and you don't even know it. You can get into a cloud and get so disoriented that you could be flying into the ground and think you're actually flying up into the sky. And there have been famous people who have driven their plane into the ground thinking they were going the other direction. And that's because they, they only really could, could go with what they see. And when they got into a cloud, they got confused and they didn't understand. They had to hold on to what the instruments had to say, no matter what their emotions might be saying at any given point. And that's exactly what we do here. We, we look and say, this is the instrument. Now, I have all kinds of feelings. And those feelings aren't always misleading, but I can't trust those feelings. I've got to trust the Bible. I'm, I'm staring at it and I'm saying, even though I may feel one way, I'm going to keep moving in this direction because this is the direction that God wants me to go. And so we have this verbal exhortation that Joshua, that God is saying to Joshua, Joshua, you've got to keep your eyes on the instruments. You've got to speak the truth out. You've got to meditate on it day and night. Because, see, when you get into a difficult situation, and you know this, particularly if you're a young person, your emotions are going all over the place. And you have to say, but what, what does the instrument panel say? And then I'll just fly in that direction. One pilot instructor said the toughest part of earning an instrument rating is learning to have an unquestioning faith in the instruments. When your eyes say one thing and the instruments, instruments tell you another, you must trust the instruments or face disaster. Many of you come here, you have an inquirer's class, and we, at the inquirer's class we go around and say, you know, what, what was attractive about Christ Community Church? And kindly, many of you say just, the, you know, the reading and the preaching of God's Word, that's the, the critical thing. And, and over the last 11 years, at different points, the church flies, has flown into to, to clouds, and your feelings would have led you one direction, but the, the Word of God has to lead you in a different one. Many of you have flown in or, and out of or are in a cloud. And your feelings tell you one thing, that maybe God isn't around or He's not faithful or He's not good. And, and I want to be the person who's constantly saying, Here, here's what the instruments say. I know how you feel. But let's remember we're flying our lives according to the instruments and not our feelings. Then there's this visual illustration, which I really love there. The Ark of the Covenant. Remember, it's going to go into the river first. The river's going to part. And, and Joshua says, you need to stay back. This 2,000 cubits. It's maybe 300 yards. And, and I don't know particularly the, the exact reasons why, but, but at least one of the reasons is because you don't know where you're going. See, you've never been this way before. And you're constantly going into new days and new weeks and new careers and new colleges and, and all kinds of new relationships. And God's saying, you've never been in this situation before, so let's make sure we have the Word of God way out front. So you're always following it. And plus, Joshua, I don't want you to get too close 
So people associate you as the Word of God. See, I want even the leader to have some space. So if the leader himself is starting to make a wrong turn, that person like the Bereans can say, yeah, but does it line up with the Word of God? I don't want anybody to confuse what Paul says with what the Bible says. That's why 11 years ago when I started, I said, hey, the one thing I want to do is after the reading of the word, I want there to be some space. And that's why we've done that for 11 years. I just don't want anybody to confuse this with this. There's a huge difference between the two. And you should always be lining up and following after this. And my prayer is that I'm faithfully expounding that, but I have my own weaknesses, and you want to make sure you're like the Berean believer and you're always going back to the Word of God. Finally, it takes courage. Be strong and courageous, said three times in that opening chapter. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. My picture of Joshua is somebody who is inherently strong and courageous. Just have this, you know, sort of strong figure. He's been with Moses. He's seen all these kinds of things. And he's ready. He, he was also in the promised land, you remember? And he says, we should go in. And when he came back out, they said, no, there's giants in there. I mean, we, we look like grasshoppers compared to those people. And I just sort of, sort of have this feeling that Joshua is hardwired for courage. But why would God say it three times in nine verses? If Joshua somehow was thinking, uh-oh, Moses is gone. I mean, will God still be with us? And so he's constantly reminding his leaders, be strong, be, be courageous. I know it looks like a difficult way, but I'm going to be there with you. Joshua could have been concerned as he walked into the promised land about the people he was going to face. He certainly must have been. He had seen them themselves, himself. He knew what they looked like. He knew the, 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 the fear that those people could invoke. So God needed to say, hey, the main person on the stage, Joshua, is not those people. It's me. And I'm going to be with you. But I think that Joshua could have also been afraid of being the leader of these people. Not trying to go and face the enemy, but he got to watch how these people treated Moses. So Moses gets him across the Red Sea, and you remember what immediately happened? Hey, Moses, we don't want you to be the leader. We want to go back. So Moses, I mean, Joshua got to witness that. Joshua got to witness Aaron, Moses' right-hand man, and Miriam, Moses' sister, try to take the leadership away from Moses. And so Joshua could have been real concerned about getting shot by an arrow from the people he was facing, and he might have been equally as concerned being shot by an arrow of the people he was leading. And that's a difficulty in leadership is that you've got to face the arrows from every side. And God is saying, be strong, be courageous. I'm going to be a fortress all the way around. So no matter which way the arrow is coming, I'm going to be able to be with you and protect you. Well, we know Joshua is the shadow of uh, 
the true Joshua, the better Joshua. Joshua in the Hebrew, if you translate that to the Greek, is Yeshua, which is Jesus. He's the real commander. And so now, if you walk in Israel and you saw this pile of stones and you would say, well, God must have helped in some way. Now there's a different Ebenezer. There's a different marker that stands as the way that God has helped us. And what is that? It's the cross. Let's pray together.